0: Good to see you here. It was kind of questionable, wasn't it, about uh, uh, whether we'd even have church today or not, with the weather being what they forecast it to be. Uh, I suggested to Joanna that maybe the snack food of choice for the Alpha program would be Alpha Bits. Um, and um, that, that was a joke. You can... Yeah. <laughs> anyway, she didn't go for it, but... I still think it's a great idea. You know, there's so much that's being said right now about the coronavirus. And just heard this morning that the first death outside of of China took place in the Philippines. Um, and uh, so it's becoming a, a worldwide thing. I read an article yesterday uh, about Martin Luther's approach to the bubot B- How do you say it? Rebonic Plague, known as the the, uh, Black Death, it killed half of the people in Europe about 400 years ago. And so there was tremendous fear. And uh, Martin Luther, um, uh, in addressing the church, said, uh, "Ask the question, should we hide and preserve ourselves so that we don't get it? Or should we go and should we minister to those that are infected? And uh, his answer, of course, was that that's what Jesus did. He came in our depraved state um, where we were going to die because of sin. And he came to where we are, where and where we are. And he reaches out and he healed us uh, through salvation, through his grace. And so the response of the church should not be to protect itself but to make itself vulnerable, even if it means death. Uh, wow. When we were in Hong Kong during the SARS crisis, uh, there was people dying every day. And as the, as the crisis started to wane, uh, it became quite apparent, well, it became apparent throughout as well, that several Christian doctors and nurses uh, went right to the patient's where they were, uh, treated them, and many of those doctors and nurses died. And Marlene and I were uh, attended, we were part of, a huge gathering of several thousand Christians in the city where uh, we honored those medical professionals who sacrificed their lives in order to be able to curb the outbreak of SARS and to rescue people. So that's, in essence, what the gospel is about, what the church is about. It's not tried to insulate ourselves from the pain that's in our world, but as Martin Luther said, move toward it, not away from it. And that's what we're doing, not that Valentine's is some kind of a plague or a crisis, but we're moving toward people uh, with this opportunity of sharing the love of Jesus. I bought four things, and then I decided I'd buy five, and now I've, I've got a whole bunch more I'm going to buy and, um, and just have them delivered to friends, people that are not uh, uh, connected to the church, but people who are just people of acquaintances. Uh, I know one man right now who's very, very heavy on my heart, and he just lost his wife a little while ago, and so Valentine's is going to be, a side day for him, so I'm going to invite him and members of his family, and there are others that we can reach out to. So, so uh, by all means, make uh, take this opportunity, this very unique opportunity, uh, for evangelism and and move toward, not away. You receive that this morning, huh? <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm going to put a a slide up there, it's the first one, uh, and you can leave it up there for a while. If somebody came to you and said, what does this verse mean? Woman is the glory of man, what would you say? Now it's, I'm just taking a a phrase or a statement within a verse, so the whole verse explains it a little more. Uh, but just that statement itself, woman is the glory of man. What's that mean? Well, last week, we shared from the book of Titus. You can just leave that up there, Chris, thanks. Uh, we shared from, from Titus the, how the gospel is shared, and then how the church grows once it receives the gospel. And we read from uh, Titus chapter two, uh, and I 'm just going to read some verses from there for again just to refresh your your memory and to and for those that didn't uh, that weren't here last week to be able to give you some context of because um, this message uh, follows on the heels of last week 's message. Um, Crete is where Titus was living. Uh, Crete is an island of about 250 miles long, about 50 miles wide. So that's kilometers, probably about 400 by 70 or 75 or so. And it was known as the the island of a hundred cities or a hundred towns. And so there were there were churches in many of these towns, and it was a the culture was Greek. In fact, Titus himself came from Greek. Parents, uh, there was no Jewish connection in his family that would tie him back into the Old Testament and the understanding of what led to the coming of Christ and the salvation that He offers. Now, Timothy and Titus are very uh, are very similar books. Uh, Titus had a Greek father and a Jewish mother, so Titus had a little. Or uh, Timothy had a uh, a, a Greek um, father and uh, uh, Jewish mother. So he had some understanding of the Old Testament. And so he had a little bit more information uh, at the time that he got saved than Titus did. Well, here's what Paul said. Uh, you must teach, this is chapter two, we're not going to throw, throw, uh, show it up here, you can just listen or you can follow in your Bible. Paul said to Titus, you must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine." Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-connected or self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. So, the very first people he addresses is the older men. And the older men have a responsibility to teach the younger men. Now, likewise, in verse 3, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live. Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. So, older men, you have a responsibility to teach. Older women, you have a responsibility to align your life with what is appropriate for the word of God so that you can teach younger women how to live. And then uh, it says, Similarly, encourage young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them as an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. So here's what's happening. The island of Crete was uh, steeped in Greek mythology, Greek religion. It was an island that there was all kind of perverse practices that uh, were even a part of their religion. It was a lifestyle that was so opposite to the lifestyle of Christ and what he taught his his apostles, what they passed on to us, and, of course, what Jesus himself taught. And so there's two very distinct ways of living in this world. We can live according to our old nature, if you want to call it that, or mankind apart from Christ. Or we can come into a relationship with Jesus through the gospel, and our lifestyle changes. And basically, the change produces this. Nobody can look at the church and say that, "Hey, there's really something wrong with this. The way that they live does not line up with what they teach." And uh, and so the so the whole practice of the church is just Something that I'm not interested in. And uh, we can all look at the church and we can see this person not really measuring up to the standards of the scripture in this part of his life. Or this person not uh, living up to their, to the standards of the scripture in the, the, another part of their life. And we can be very critical of what other people are doing, people who, who claim to be Christians. But God has not called us to criticize. He's called us to set an example and to encourage and teach others to mature in their faith. And that's why there's this generational separation that comes into the church. Now, when Paul said to Titus, teach the older men, it's not that these older men had a history of following Jesus. They were new converts just like everybody else was. This is a brand new experience for Cretans. Uh, they didn't understand the gospel before. It had never come to them. They didn't have the tradition of the Jewish faith. And so it was a brand new phenomenon, so opposite to what they had believed when it came to understanding the many gods and myths of the, of the Greeks. So, uh, old man, now it's... You've heard it said it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. It's hard to teach an old man to change his ways or his mind. It's hard to teach old Pe- older people are just kind of set in their ways, right? We understand that. Um, some of us are even like that, uh, and <laughs> that would be true of me in lots of ways, I'm sure. But the power of the gospel is that you that the gospel can take a person's life, no matter how old they are or how entrenched their manner of living is that is apart from the gospel or apart from the ways of Christ and teach even an old man that he can change to the point that he can teach younger men. Now, if a younger man sees an older man change, especially if that older man might have been his dad, who was not always kind, didn't always treat his wife well, or didn't treat him as a son or a daughter well. And then you see a change, a transformation in an older person that now is being transferred down to that younger person in their generation. That is the power of the gospel, and that is what Timothy was teaching Titus. Older people can change. And not only can older people change, so can younger people change. And not only change for themselves, but affect their generation with the power of the gospel of Jesus and its life-transforming influences on the way we live. Well, so, uh, woman is the glory of man. We'll get back to that. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 to 3. Here's Here's where the problem began in the human race. Let's look at this. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. So now Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, 28, adds a word, and that is, Man was created in the image and likeness of God. In Genesis chapter 5, it just says the likeness of God, which would include his image. Image has to do with identity, of who you are, the sense of self that you have. Uh, it, it's about how I fit into this world. It's how, how I see myself. And it's... Uh, uh, Of course, a crisis in our world today. Uh, People have lost that sense of pure identity that God gave us in the beginning, that he gave mankind. God created the first man and the woman in his image. So who he was, the eternal God, was reflected in the man and the woman and who they were. So their identity was solidly in relation to God the Father who created them. Well, not just, the Bible says, let us create man in our image and likeness. And so us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, creating together this beautiful being called man. And actually, mankind in the Bible is not a gender word, it refers to both man and woman. Uh, male is, of course, and female is gender, but mankind in the book of Genesis was included the man and the woman. So when God said, let us create man in our image and likeness, he said, it then follows and says he created them male and female. And so the two of them together were created in the image and likeness of God. Man was in created as some kind of superior being, and the woman as an inferior being, they were created together in the image and likeness of God. Now things happened to mess all that up. And what, what took place is that um, sin came into the world. And, the, and that sin ended up in a, in a tearing apart of that divine union of male and female becoming husband and wife, being married, being joined. And whenever, right at the very beginning, when God brings the woman to the man, uh, it's, it's, the scripture says that the two were, were joined together and should not ever be put asunder. The two actually became one. They were joined. That's what marriage means, to be joined so the woman completed the man and the man completed the woman. And apart from each other, they were alone. They didn't really meet the full identity of who they were. And why is it that why is it that way? Well, you're we created in the image and likeness of God. God himself exists in a relationship with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So there's a unity in the Trinity. And likewise, when God created us, there's a unity in the husband-wife-God relationship. It's a holy marriage, a holy trinity that includes God as creator and man and woman, male and female, in a wonderful relational dynamic where we as humans draw upon the nature and the likeness of God. Well, likeness has to do with what he's like. What is God like? Does he ever divorce us? Does he ever say, well, you know, I, I made a mistake. You really messed up bad. I'm just going to wipe you off. Did he did he ever come to a place where he's, has he ever abused us? Even when he corrects us with punishment, the purpose is to, to draw us closer to him. So it's, it's what does God like? Well, he's good, always good. Always kind, always benevolent, always loving, always affirming, always blessing. And the idea of blessing is actually tied into the conferring of identity. So when a father blesses his son or daughter, and the Jew- Jewish people practice this. They lay hands at the time of mitzvah, at the, when, whenever there's a conferring of the identity of the, the young Jewish boy. And the Father blesses and confirm confirms the name, the identity of his son and and so it's, that's picked up from what God did when he created us. He blessed us, and he said, "You're not alone, you're my child, I love you. I want to be to be in relationship with you. I want to care for you, but Adam lived." Sin came into the world, and uh, man called Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. God did not give the woman the name Eve Adam did it was a recognition of the separation that had taken place between them uh, ever since then, divorce has been common, broken relationships, common law relationships, a relationship from one to the other, and just the whole the whole gamut of of human struggle when it comes to sexuality. And it says this, that Adam lived 130 years, and he begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So in the beginning, Adam was created in the image and likeness of God, but that image and likeness was not passed on to his children. He passed on his own fallen image to his son Seth. And the whole human race has received that image ever since then. We're born with an identity crisis. We're born into a world where people fight. You don't have to teach a baby to be self-centered. Did you know that? (laughs) Babe. You don't have to teach a, a baby to... Uh, demand that they have their own toys and not share it with anybody, right? Or to uh, throw a temper tantrum, or if mom or dad says you need to do this or you need to do that for them just to say, I'm going to do my own thing, or just refuse to obey. You don't have to teach that. That's part of human fallen human nature. And then as the child grows, and we've all gone through this, we go through experiences after experiences that, Often we regret. Often we really mess up. Well, when it happened to the man and to the woman, um, that when sin entered, where they ate the fruit of the tree that they were forbidden to eat, it says in Genesis three, chapter eight, and or chapter three, verse eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Now, this had, before this had been a wonderful experience. It was a time of special connection. It was a, a time when God himself came and personally communed with the man and the woman in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So instead of this wonderful relationship with God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, now there was this consciousness that something is terribly wrong. They had lost that sense of who they truly were, created in his likeness and his image, and, and, and now they felt estranged. They felt uncomfortable when in the presence of God. And so they hid themselves. And ever since then, we live in denial about the truth about ourselves. It's far easier to hide than to really be transparent. It's far easier to blame than it is to accept responsibility. Adam said, God, the woman that you gave me, she gave me to eat. It's not my fault. It's her fault. And by the way, the woman was your idea, not mine. So it's actually your fault. So blame becomes a part of our, of our nature whenever we are confronted with things about ourselves that we're uncomfortable about or that we know are wrong. So in a marriage relationship, a man can yell at his wife or speak sharply to her or be demanding in his, in, you know, just with the tone of his voice. And a woman can do the same thing. And and children can grow up in an atmosphere where where instead of the conferring of blessing and the identity that they should experience from father and mother, where father and mother in their own union with each other demonstrate a loving connection that then gets transferred to the children, and the children or the child grows up in in an atmosphere of safety and security and a sense of they develop a healthy sense of who they are. So often in our world, that's not what happens. So wh- what are the things that, are character- that characterize this lost image that we struggle with? And we all do. Uh, I got a few points up here. It's the next one, yeah. Uh, deep feelings of inadequacy. I'm not good enough. I just, this person is so talented and gifted, but I, I'm not like that. And so, everything that we see others do that we perceive to be things that we can't do, we internalize it as a, as a, just a really, a real strong sense of, of inadequacy, and then self-doubt. You, you've got this vision. You get this dream. that you, you really are impacted by the things that you've experienced or heard at church. And, and you get this sense that, well, do you know what? I can really do some things that before this time I was afraid to do or felt I wasn't trained to do. And I, and, and I think I can do this. And then you leave church or something happens along the way that just gives, you, uh, gives rise to self-doubt. I I was told I could do it. The the Sunday school teacher encouraged me. The youth leader encouraged me. The older men, my peers, encouraged me. The women in the church encouraged me. The pastor encouraged me. God's Word encouraged me. The Holy Spirit encouraged me that, yes, I can. But then, now you're left alone with your own thoughts and feelings, and the voice of encouragement isn't as audible as it was when it was spoken in your ear, and now you start to doubt yourself. I, I, no, I can't. I better go hide. I'm going to hide behind the trees of the field or the forest. Self-loathing would become full of hatred towards herself, and people start to abuse themselves, start to involve themselves in things that are very detrimental to their mental health, to their physical health, to their emotional well being and for sure to their spiritual well being. And so we, we we people end up in doing uh, things that are that characterize the hatred of themselves. And often that expresses itself in lashing out at others. There's this pervasive sense of loneliness. When God created the man, he said, "It's not good for man to be alone. So I'll be—I'll create someone who is his comparable person, and bring her to him, and they will become one. They'll never be alone again in human relationships. So th- this sense of loneliness, where you're in a marriage but you can't really engage in the marriage. So the way that you know you should, so you distance yourself from your wife." by becoming silent or you just um, can be harsh with your words or not include her with your thoughts or the decisions. You're really two people living separate identities, not that wonderful connectedness that God ordained marriage to be. You can be in a big crowd and feel alone. You can be single, and by the very virtue of the fact that you're single, you you feel different, not quite as complete as others do, not recognizing that singleness is a God-ordained way of living that he blesses. And there are purposes for the single person. And, And instead of that, we can just be overcome by this sense of loneliness. And then guilt. I shouldn't be like this. I should be better than this. I, I, I did this. I said that to this person, and I'll forever feel guilty. I, I, I said some really, really, really bad things to my dad, and then before I had a chance to connect with him, he passed away. And now I can never say I'm sorry. And so you live with this abiding guilt that just lives with you. It just speaks to your heart and to your mind uh, day after day after day. And somebody comes along and shares the love of Jesus, the wonderful plan of God's grace, where he confers his uh, his identity on us once again. That, That which was lost in Eden, Is restored through Jesus, and and it could take a while for that message to get in because the walls of denial can be pretty thick, and whenever somebody says you they love you, it just can bounce right off. No, it can't be true. I that's just false. That's fake news. It's not good news. And yet the Holy Spirit has a way of faithfully bringing the love of Jesus, the transforming power. Of his nature abiding in us that changes all of this. And so, this is why Paul wrote to Titus and he said, Titus, listen, everybody's going through the same struggle. The old men, <laughs> they shouldn't be trying to influence people given their history of all the kind of sin they lived in through their lifetime. And so you're just going to, yeah, accept them in the church, but just keep them on the shelf somewhere because they've got such history that, oh, man, uh, just get them through to heaven somehow. No, it's not the way the gospel works. Take those who have been most affected by sin. And who else could that be but the older people because they've lived longer. They've had more chances to sin. And through them, show how the power of Jesus can affect an older person, can change their lives, and through them, change the, the younger generations. And so, for youth leaders, you have a tremendous responsibility when it comes to teens. Some teens that come to our youth group don't have the kind of example that Paul was saying to Titus, Set before the younger men. So younger men, in your relationships, younger women in your relationships, show the integrity that Titus was instructed by Paul to show to his peer group at his age. And through that, the gospel becomes demonstrated so that nobody can say they're just a bunch of fakes. Now that's not the reason. (laughs) that we do it. We're not just trying to find the acclaim and the approval of others, but we want to share the love of Jesus through our lifestyle, through what happens when we share ourselves with another person, A a teenager whose father and mother are not serving God. Maybe they're involved in affairs that. kids know about. We've got kids like that in our church who struggle with those those things. Maybe it's a Christian home so-called, but dad can be very cruel with his tongue. So can mom. You never hear a word that says, I love you, son. I bless you. I'm so proud that you're my kid. I wouldn't trade you for anybody in the world. And so there's not, you don't say that to create a sense of pride, but accept uh, to create a sense of connectedness so that the child is not left to be alone in this world. That's the task of the church. That's what we're doing when we're sending out these little flowers for Valentine's Day. It's a message that says you are loved. When they come here, they'll hear the gospel, I'm sure. But, but but the that which brought them here wasn't God telling them that he loves them. It's you telling them that you are inviting them to be your valentine. Well, you're not necessarily going to say that, but you're going to imply that. You're saying, I accept you. I want you to experience love. I want you to know you're not alone. You're cared for. Well... Uh, We could go on and on talking about those kinds of things. But let me just encourage you, first off, in a very practical term, think right now of who you could send one of those little packages of... I've got a little guy in mind right now I'm sending it to. And the flowers i have got several people. I'm going to send those to. Well, I'm not going to give it. I'm just going to give the money, and you guys are going to do it, because that's beneath my... no. I'm too big. Be- no, I, I'll get. I'll I'll share your flowers and things. I'll take them on your behalf, and uh, you can take what's um what I've sent to others on my behalf. And that's the idea. You're not delivering them to the people yourself. Somebody's delivering them on your behalf. Well, let's go back to First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7. A man not ought not to cover his head. Now, in the context of this, it's talking about Christ as his head, not his physical head. And there's a whole teaching about that. But So man should not cover his head. In other words, hide from the fact that Jesus is his Lord. And you're not covering, the, you're not preventing Jesus from having the influence in your life that is life transformative. So if you go back to the beginning of this chapter Paul said, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. The head of God is Christ, the head of man is Christ, and the head of woman is man. And what he's describing is a redemptive flow. It has nothing to do with equality because father and son are equal, and yet they live in a relationship for the purpose of redemption where the son submits himself to the father. And then coming into the family relationship, God places the responsibility of men to be the greatest demonstrators of submission to Jesus and to rec- and not to cover his head or to prevent Jesus from in some way changing and affecting his life. And then he can share that wonderful grace, that wonderful transformative power to his wife and to his children. So it says... Uh, for he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. Now, this is in a redemptive context. All right? It's not in the Genesis context of creation. But basically, it's a formula for family life. It's <laughs> Here's how it works. Ever, hear, ever remember the song, You light up my life? Please tell me you remember it, or I'll have to sing the whole thing for you. Whether you remember it or not, just (laughs) nod, because you'll be sorry if uh, I sing the whole thing. But you know the song, You Light Up My Life? It's a love song. It talks about that special person that when I'm with you, wow, the world is a better place. The birds are chirping just a little louder. The grass is a little greener. Life is just more fun, pleasant. It's, it's, just, it's just that wonderful experience of being lit up by another person because of their love and their attention and just the joy of being with that person. So what God is saying to men, to husbands, let me light up your life. Let me pour my glory, which is his personality. It's everything about him that is true. His person and his works. Let me let me give that to you. Let my experience with you and your experience with me be such that you could stand in a worship service or stand on the side of a hill and look up into the heavens and say, "God, you light up my life," and just just worship the Lord because He confers His glory, His identity, and then as a husband, you go to your wives, and they are in a relationship with you where they're very dependent upon you for many things, just as a man is dependent upon his wife. And you can see a woman whose countenance is brilliant and effervescent and happy. and Though she might be going through struggles, she's going through the trials of life, there's the could be financial problems, problems with struggles with children or the workplace or personal issues of health or family. And yet, overriding all of that is a relationship with a man who lights up her life. Her husband becomes her glory. The one who imparts to her Affirming words, not words of condemnation, not sharply spoken, not bad moods. Marlene can tell you how I used to struggle with bad moods. Um, It used to be a problem for me. I would go days and days where it's like nobody knew who I was. Well, I could get up and preach on Sunday, but man... Uh, living with me through the, the kids felt it. What's wrong with that And whenever it was all said and done, if you were to ask me, what's wrong with you? Well, I don't really know. Nothing, really. It's not a problem in the church, or the kids didn't do anything, or Marlene for sure didn't do anything. Well, why are you like this? Well, you see, we tend to retreat to that place where we once hid from the reality of ourselves because that's where we feel comfortable. And it takes a, a, a real, uh, it takes a real man, a real woman, a real person to say, that's not where I'm going to go. Help me, God. I'm not going to go there. And so we start to deal with our life issues ourselves so that there will be no hindrance in the flow, that as a husband, I prevent my wife from being receiving the glory that God has given to me and commissions me to give to her. Now, that in microcosm is how relationships work, how parents treat children, how you treat your neighbor. If you've got somebody working for you, how you treat them. If you have a neighbor who maybe did something you don't like, well, you don't get angry and cranky and whatever, but you show love and grace. You, You don't... Well, we can go on and on and on. The whole nature of Jesus is what we're called to be and how we're called to live. Darrell, would you bring your worship team back? How is this possible? Well, um, maybe next Sunday I'll get into Titus chapter 3 or the first verses of Titus chapter 1. Because it all gets, it all comes together. In fact, what I'll do right now is I'll read Titus chapter three, and you can. Um, and uh, Betty and Greg, would you join me? And Marlene and Joanna and and uh, Jordan and uh, Diane, would you come as well? Um, Titus is a beautiful book. He's always saying, remind the people, tell the people, teach the people. And he starts chapter 3 with, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved By all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But, 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 when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Lord so that having been justified by his grace we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Wow. Paul didn't for one minute that he had some kind of superior energy that enabled him to change. But it all came through Jesus and the cross and the power of the gospel. Aren't you glad for the blood of Christ, for the power of his spirit, for the saving of our sins, for justification, but not just for that, but for lives, our lives being transformed and continually being transformed day by day as we grow in Christ. Amen? So as we take of these emblems this morning, uh, allow yourself to just receive from the hand of God.